Welcome to Peace Lutheran Church Podcast. I'm Pastor Brad Schallenberg. We are in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 5, reading at verse 8. Now, class conflict between the rich and the poor seems to be constant and increases during election season for sure, and it's common for each side to villainize the other side. Those that lean politically to the left will paint a picture of the rich as greedy and scrupulous people who rob the poor and oppress the needy without regard for their well-being, and those leaning politically right will paint the poor as lazy, unmotivated people who elect politicians that will fleece the hard-working rich through taxes only to give away their money to those who did not earn it and do not deserve it. Who would you label the good guys or the bad guys? And this conflict is so deep in the roots of our culture that even Christians get into mudslinging and name-calling. The truth is, you can cherry-pick Bible verses to support both sides quite easily, which is kind of what the poverty theology people do and the prosperity theology tend to do as well. In poverty theology, being poor is a sign of godliness because you do not care about worldly things and are content due to your heavenly mindedness. In poverty theology, the portrait of Jesus is a poor carpenter peasant during his years on the earth in all humility. In prosperity theology, being rich is a sign of godliness because God has blessed you with a lifestyle that is more akin to the one you will enjoy in your eternal home, where the streets are lined with gold. And in prosperity theology, the portrait of Jesus is a rich king seated on a throne in his heavenly kingdom in unparalleled wealth and glory. But what does the Bible say? I mean, never mind what everybody else is saying. What does the Bible say about poverty and wealth. Well, when it comes to the rich and the poor, the Bible actually has four categories, not just two. This is because the Bible is far more concerned with how you received, given, spent, shared your wealth than how much wealth you have. To say it in another way, the Bible is more concerned with your righteousness and your heart motives than your riches. So the four categories are righteous, rich, unrighteous, rich, righteous, poor, unrighteous, poor. And if you have some biblical knowledge, you can quickly start to think through various people in the Bible and put them in each category. Similarly, if you think about people you know today, you can start putting them in various categories quite easily. Lastly, if you're honest... You can do the same for yourself and determine which category you fit in. Now let's turn to our text, because we'll probably read a bit about the rich and the poor. So, verse 8 of chapter 5. If you see the poor oppressed in a district, and justice and rights denied, do not be surprised at such things. For one official is eyed by a higher one, and over them both are others higher still. The increase from the land is taken by all. The king himself profits from the fields. Jesus is a king who rules over a kingdom where there are no taxes. It sounds heavenly. Sadly, until we get to Jesus' kingdom, we're stuck here 
with politicians who love red tape and bureaucracy because it allows all their partners to get their hand in the cookie jar as the cookies pass from the overtaxed rich to the hungry poor. Solomon is a king, and so he understands how this works from the very top of the Ponzi scheme. And the result is, he says, people are oppressed, which includes the rich and the poor, because both are ripped off by the government. There is no one to call in for help. That is why Solomon says, don't be surprised. When you see this kind of corruption, because crooked people running a crooked nation never pave a straight road to the kingdom. Now you know why we always need to pray for our leaders. The leaders in our country and province and city. Because it's a tough job to manage $340 billion budget. To him who's been given much, much will be required. Now you need, you need money to live. And the Bible is not against money. So Solomon speaks of the unrighteous rich in verse 10 and 11. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This, too, is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owner except to feast his eyes on them? Hmm. The Lord of heaven and earth thinks it's a good idea to feed your kids, get them an education, and give them a safe and warm bed to sleep in. Money is in itself like a hammer, quite neutral. You can use a hammer to make a living, or you can use a hammer to hit someone over the head. The hammer is the, never the problem. Rather, the heart of the person wielding the hammer is always the issue. And so it is with money. I mean, you can worship with your money by giving generously, caring for your family, helping those in need, or you can worship your money. And that is why the Bible never speaks poorly of money, but always speaks poorly of the love of money. The love of money means that your heart and hope are in your wealth so that your identity, your comfort, your joy, your security are all in your bank account. In other words, money has become your functional God, no matter who you would say your actual God is. I remember as a kid watching cartoons, and there would be people out in the desert, and they'd see what looked like a watered oasis in the distance. Longing for that tropical paradise, people would make the long journey toward that place only to find it was a mirage. In many ways, our lives are all lived with a mirage on the horizon. Maybe it's a home or a fancy car or a vacation or a state of being or a lifestyle or feelings that looks to us like Eden on earth. And if we could just get there, we could taste heaven on earth. But how do we get there? By making and spending money. The only problem is, even if you do somehow burn enough cash to get to the spring in the desert, you realize it was all just a mirage. Solomon is the richest man with arguably one of the most lavish lifestyles in the history of the world. And he declares that he is unhappy and life is meaningless. Furthermore, the world's filled with pickpockets 
in the form of double-crossing spouses and their shady attorney, crooked accountants, lazy staff, freeloading relatives, and tax-happy government officials who want to fund the mirage. Sadly, even if you do stack up a little pile of gold, it is gone once the looters have had their way with your loot. This is the tragic tale of many a rock star or a world-class athlete who has ever been honest enough to tell us how they so quickly went from bling-bling lifestyle to bankruptcy. How does that happen? Solomon then contrasts the righteous poor and the unrighteous rich in verse 12 to 15. The sleep of a laborer is sweet whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of a rich man permits him no sleep. I have seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owner, or wealth lost through some misfortune, so that when he has a son, there is nothing left for him. Naked a man comes from his mother's womb, and as he comes, so he departs. He takes nothing from his labor that he can carry in his hand. The righteous poor work a long, hard day on the job, come home to eat whatever's in the fridge and then go to bed. They sleep well because their conscience is clear. They did not rip anyone off that day, and they did not overbill their hours or pad their expense report. According to the Bible, a clear conscience is priceless and can not be bought for any amount of money. Those with a clear conscience can live with themselves and sleep good at night. Do you remember those reality television shows where they go into the home of a hoarder? Those shows are incredibly sad and shocking as you see that people's thinking has become irrational concerning their stuff. They gather things that they will never use until those things overtake their life and cause them misery. And Solomon says that some people are cash and stuff hoarders. North Americans, for example stack up more money than they will ever need, buy cars they rarely drive, purchase vacation homes they hardly visit, and have bedrooms in their home that no one ever sleeps in, filled with televisions no one ever watches. Solomon rightly says that you came into this world naked and with nothing your bank account, nothing in your bank account, and when all is said and done, you leave this planet naked without any credit cards. You cannot take it with you, and if you store up your treasures on earth, there isn't a safe place to put your profits, right? Real estate markets crash, investments go bad, the stock market can turn faster than the mood of a hungry infant, and the longer you keep your cash stacked up, people, starting with those you elected, find a way to eat away at your savings. So what should we do? I mean, what should we do? First, we need to give our first fruits to God, which is always a good eternal investment. Then pay our bills, invest a bit wisely, and then be generous to others, starting with our own kids. If you're able to do this, you'll get to see them enjoy God's blessing and your generosity while you are still alive, rather than waiting to give them an inheritance when you die. The world needs to change and neither the unrighteous poor or the unrighteous rich are helpful. According to verse 16 to 17, this too is a grievous ill, evil. 
As a man comes, so he departs, and what does he gain, since he toils for the wind? All his days he eats in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. The unrighteous poor do little to change the world because they're sluggards who sit around with a sense of entitlement waiting for a responsible adult to come and fix their problems, make their dinner, pay their bills. If you haven't, you should go see the Oscar winning movie of the year, Parasite. It is a tale of the unrighteous poor. Their contribution to the world registers a zero on the Richter scale of value. Their counterpart, the unrighteous rich, also contribute nothing to making the world a better place. They take without giving back, use people and don't serve them, and spend their days like a leech sucking the blood out of anyone and anything they can. This is one clear reason why God does not condone every poor person or every rich person. God is interested in the motive of the heart, not the amount of money you have. So God has thus far shown us each, whatever mirage we're pursuing, out of love he wants to save us from folly and misery. Sometimes God needs to crush our vision to give us his vision. So this would be a good time to ask yourself, what am I pursuing? And why? Having now done that, the teacher presses us toward a godly and a good life that is made possible for the rich and the poor, all by God's grace. Look at verse 18 to 20. I love this. Then I realized, there's a good word, then I realized that it is good and proper for a man to eat and drink and to find satisfaction in his toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given him. For this is his lot. Moreover, when God gives any man wealth and possessions and enables him to enjoy them, to accept his lot and be happy in his work, this is a gift of God. He seldom reflects on the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with gladness of heart. So what's the answer to life under the sun? Well, it sounds like we're to live a righteous life with God by grace. As sinners, each of us has a debt to God that we cannot repay. Thankfully, Jesus came from glory and riches to humility and poverty to pay our debt to God. Jesus forgave our debt to God by dying in our place for our sins. Upon rising from death and returning to heaven, Jesus is now preparing a place for us in his kingdom as our king. And in that place, there will be people who were rich and poor in this life. But until we get to that place, we are to live by the Holy Spirit's power, a new life of righteousness, whether we are rich or poor. And so what does that righteous life look like? Well, here's the list from Solomon the Wise in this section. And these are the marks of a righteous life lived to God's glory and our joys. Very simple. Eat, drink, enjoy your work, 
accept your lot in life, make money, enjoy your health, enjoy your life, move on from past hurts. A righteous life, according to the Bibles, is intensely practical. Our first parents started a lot of trouble when they ate without God. Think about it. We get into more trouble when we drink without God. When we go to work without God. And when we live a life that God did not intend for us by loading ourselves up with a workload we cannot carry in an effort to make more money. The result is that we ruin our life and we rob our health and we waste the precious energy we have, haunted by the past rather than being happy in the present. God is a good God and his plans for us are good. We are to eat with him every meal. That might help in the decisions about what we eat. We are to drink with him every meal. Then we won't over-drink and indulge in alcohol that might hurt us. We are to experience his presence at work. Every effort done for God, every decision we make at work, made with God in mind. And we're to accept our lot in life, whatever that might be. That sounds like contentment. And out of this, we can make our money, enjoy our health, find some good times in life, but only if we're willing to move on from the past hurts. I love that phrase. He seldom reflects on the days of his life because God keeps him busy with the present. Man, don't dwell on the past. Some people are like archaeologists, always digging up a painful past to look at it carefully. Others drag their worst day into every day and haunt themselves by making their past hurts and regrets the first things they think of in the morning and the last thing they think of in the evening. The key to life is to not be haunted by the past or hoping for future mirage, but rather grabbing the present and squeezing the enjoyment out of it like a wet sponge. In this life, pain is inevitable, but misery is a choice. Brooding is what kills enjoying. You need to accept God's forgiveness of you, and as a forgiving person, be forgiving of others. It sounds like the Lord's Prayer. Our Father gladly forgives and makes us forgiving, so you need to stop worrying about a past you cannot change, and instead, worship in the present, because that is what will change you. If you've been pursuing wealth or fame or popularity or some kind of place or some kind of feeling, stop it. It's in the past. Now, today, pursue God. He'll fill every need. The key to the present is to let go of your past and let go of the people in your past who are not part of your future. You're walking to heaven with like-minded people. Enjoy them on your way. And in this way, you can stop brooding over yesterday and start enjoying every day. This is a gift from God. Today is a gift from God, so enjoy it. This is the wisdom of the teacher, and this is the wisdom of God. Amen.